so they, uh, the, the scientists, they did some, some research into uh, health during the holidays. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really bad news, actually. Um, something like uh, between 60 and 70% of Americans say that the, uh, the holiday season from Thanksgiving through New Year's is the most stressful time of year. Um, and the reasons are varied, but uh, you know, up, up on top are things like finances and um, kind of like sort of a social pressure to do Christmas in a way that makes you look good. Uh, I know for probably the first seven years of our marriage, Aaron and I, we, uh, Christmas was a disaster because, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money because uh, I was, you know, sitting at home not doing anything while she was uh, producing. And as a result, like, the, when Christmas hit, it was like there was all this pressure to, you know, buy this and, and give that. And, and gosh, you know, it, it just became really brutal. And I, I will never forget the first time we saw it. You know the Dave Ramsey? We, uh, we did a small group a couple, like three years ago, and the very first uh, video, Dave Ramsey makes this offhand comment where he's like, oh, and you're shocked that you're going to spend more money at Christmas? What, did, is, it's not like it doesn't happen every year. Like, you should probably plan for that. It was like the lights went off. You're like, oh my gosh. And one of the biggest things that changed, I would say, our ability to deal with the holidays was like setting aside money all year around so that when Christmas came, we didn't just get just slammed. Interestingly, uh, ER visits and uh, um, mental health reporting actually dips during the months of November and December. And then right after New Year's spikes to the highest uh, that we get all year long. And the uh, scientists think that the reason for that is that what people do, especially in our culture, is they kind of just put their head down, their shoulder down, and plow through uh, the Christmas season. And then as soon as it's over... All of the worry and stress that we've been, like, just not dealing with slams us. And as a result, uh, January and February are the, um, the highest incidences of heart disease and panic attacks and all those fun things. We're in a series we're calling What I'm Not Doing for Christmas. Uh, we started out saying, well, one of the things I'm not going to do, I'm not going to run around like a chick with my head cut off. Uh, that was, so last week instead, we looked at what Scripture says, and Scripture is really clear about the rhythm of human life. It's supposed to be punctuated with rest. And so we jumped into, like, kind of a deep dive on, on what God says about rest, and we said, you know what, we're going to do this this year. We're not going to go crazy. We're not going to fill up the calendar. We're not going to be nuts. Instead, we're going to settle the way that the, the Bible tells us we ought to. One of the crazy things is, uh, we're going to look at the, last week we were in Genesis, we're going to look at Matthew's uh, telling of the birth of Jesus, and what's so wild is you're going to see that the, the worry and the stress that we experience right now is exactly the same as the worry and stress of the very first Christmas. Nothing's new. And yet in the middle of it, God offers, kind of sets a, a, an alternative to uh, the worry of the season, so that we can rightly anticipate the coming of God's salvation in Jesus. So there's like quite a bit of text. We're just gonna we're just gonna go down. Um, we're just gonna do it as it comes. So this is the very end of the first chapter of Matthew, uh, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they Made it, made it legal before they happened did it. All right. She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expo- expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce quietly. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Just one note. Uh, you may know this, but if you don't, it's important. Jesus, uh, Yeshua, is sort of the, the, the Aramaic and the Greek version of the Hebrew word uh, Joshua, God saves. Right? Um, and, and so when Joseph is naming Jesus, it's like he's literally going to save everybody. God's going to save through him. In fact, we, we, we confess incarnation. He is God. God saves in Christ. But we might be a little weirded out by this because did you notice that they're engaged and yet Joseph is thinking about getting divorced? It's odd. Uh, in our day and age, if you're engaged and say your partner cheats and you break off the engagement, there's no legal thing that goes on there. It's just something that you would do. Uh, you might ask for the ring back or give the ring back, um, but that's about it. There's nothing else really going on there. That's because uh, our sort of all of our traditions around marriage are very different than, well, not super different, but a little bit different than the ancient world. I have a picture here of a Jewish, the Ketubah on the, uh, on the right there. The Ketubah is a, it's a legal document that, um, that punctuates Jewish weddings. It replaces in the ancient world the morah. The morah is the, uh, the, the bride price, right? So um, what happened would be, so Joseph met Mary's dad. And they kind of negotiated. And Joseph said, um, here, I'm going to give you this. And he gave some kind of gift, right? And, and once he did that, that was legally binding. So that now Mary is... is his, it's legally binding, and, and, and they remain engaged until she comes to live with him, right? Now, that's a little bit different than the way we do things, but it's because primarily we live in a culture where marriage is about um, love and romance. In the ancient world, marriage was about having families, okay? It was about um, making sure that property was passed properly down the line. It was about inheritance. And the dad, right, because in the ancient world, you got married when you were a girl, probably like 13, 14 years old. That was actually a huge economic problem for the family because in the ancient world, kids were free labor. And so Mary was probably running around the house like cooking and helping out with chores and maybe helping in the fields or whatever. As soon as Joseph takes her, that's a huge hit to the economy of, of uh, her dad's household. And so the, the price, the bride price, is to help offset that. And it's also to help offset the fact that when she has kids, those kids are going to be helping Joseph and not her dad. It's a very different kind of vibe. And so as a result, in Jewish culture uh, in the, at the time, if, if you broke off an engagement, you literally had to get a legal divorce. Uh, it was to protect the, the, the bride and to protect the groom. It was a very, very serious, serious breach and so you can see that Joseph was like, ah, he finds out she's pregnant. I mean, come on. Let's look at it again. Look at the text again. This is interesting stuff here. Uh, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Joseph's a good guy. You've got to wonder, I mean, it's very likely that Joseph's a lot older than Mary. It's also very likely that he kind of gets it. She's young, you know, she's got bright eyes. And he's like, ah, shucks. But she's a good girl, you know, and I don't want her to suffer for this. And so he's going to kind of quietly, like, take care of his. Kind of, honestly, kind of weak. I mean, if you're Joseph, like, what did that that girl just do to you, man? Going on in the text, 
The angel literally has to say to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be worried. Why would Joseph be worried? Well, I'll tell you why Joseph would be worried. Seen that crazy, stupid love, Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling? Nobody saw that movie? I'm the only one. Okay. Where's Ryan Gosling? He's good looking. Up there on the left, that's Ryan Gosling. He, in the movie Crazy Stupid Love, he plays an alpha male. If you're not familiar with an alpha, what an alpha male is, it's just take everything that I am and just do the opposite. <laughs> so like an alpha male like walks into the room and is like, I'm awesome. And he's super good looking. And he, he's wealthy and he wears expensive clothes. And the whole point of being an alpha male is that women, when they come into, into contact, they're like, oh, they just fall all over themselves. They want to be with you. We have a crisis of masculinity in our culture. There's very few alpha males left. There's a number of reasons for this. Uh, one is economic. Now we don't uh, economically reward people for being strong anymore. Uh, it used to be that being strong was a prerequisite to being able to make a lot of money. Now, as long as you can code, you're good. You can be like this. And in the knowledge economy, muscles don't count for much. Uh, moreover, in the wake of the feminist movement beginning in the 1960s and still continuing to this day, uh, there's been a, a massive sort of slippage or mingling of gender roles. And so what were traditionally considered feminine traits in Western culture have now become uh, traits that are prized in men as well. Well, in the movie, Ryan Gosling, so there's been, a, there's been a, in our culture, there's been a radical backlash. There's a whole, like a whole generation of young men who are trying to recapture what it is to be like an old school, tough hombre, you know, captain of the football team and, and classy and James Bond and all of that. And, and they really, they call themselves pickup artists. Uh, they, they, they really go for it. Joseph is not that guy. And he's worried because in the ancient world, um, so Mary has a kid, right? If he marries her, that kid who is not his is going to get firstborn inheritance rights. Moreover, Joseph comes from a small village, Nazareth. And so for the rest of his life, people are going to know that he's raising a kid that's not his, and he's giving that kid twice what he gives his own flesh and blood children. For the rest of his life, Joseph is going to be known as a cuckold. A beta male. And so he's probably really worried. Even if he buys into the notion that this is the savior of the world, it's going to cost him something to have the savior of the world in his life. It's going to cost him being the man. It's going to cost him his reputation, to some extent, his status. He will never be able to be what he probably dreamed of being as a kid. And I think, similarly, uh, one of the things that we worry about, especially at Christmas time, you know, that's the first Christmas, our Christmas, it's like, well, did, you know, do, do our Christmas cards really measure up? If you get a Christmas card from us, it'll probably arrive on the tw- between the 23rd of December and, like, January 8th. <laughs> Not great at Christmas cards. But uh, we understand uh, there, there is a certain amount of, hey, you know, what, what does your Instagram feed show that your family's doing for the holidays? 
Every single one of those things is an opportunity for us to front, to indulge this worry that our reputation, that people aren't, are going to see us and not see us as we want to be seen. And one of the things I think that's going on in this text is that Joseph is learning, and I think we're learning, that when it comes to Christmas, if you're going to have Jesus in your life, if, if he's going to be a part of your life, you might ha- there might be a cost to you in terms of social status, in terms of reputation. You might not get known as the person that you think you ought to be known as. And that causes a lot of us a lot of worry. It's the first thing in your note sheets. Are you worried about your reputation? Oh, by the way, if you didn't get a note sheet, um, my dad's sick and normally he's the one who puts them together. If you want one, Cassie in the back, hey Cassie, she'll, you just flag her down and she'll get you a note sheet if it didn't get slotted in your... But in the midst of that, let's uh, move on in the text. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the very beginning, right? Now we're going to drop to the end of this kind of like vignette, this telling of the Christmas story. So first, Joseph is freaked out. He's going to lose his reputation. Then some stuff happens, which we will talk about. The wise men come. And then this is what happens at the end, okay? The end of, of, of this story is that Jesus is going to have to move to Egypt because they're his family's where he's going to die. When the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother. Escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Herod the Great was a very powerful uh, ruler at the time. He was known as, as very cunning and also very vicious. He, uh, he did build the temple. He expanded the temple uh, of Israel, which was a big deal for the Jews. But he was also absolutely merciless when it came to anyone who challenged his rule. Josephus talks about, um, Josephus, a Jewish historian, talks about how nasty he and his son both were when anyone, like, stepped up. And so uh, when, they, when Herod finds out that there's another king of Israel, he's real upset about it. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, so Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of, uh, death of Herod. And so was fulfilled the words of the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this, at the, to, to get a sense for what this, uh, right now, they're in Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem's about six miles south of Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, which is a, a, a great bit farther south than Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary are from. Uh, to travel to Egypt would be sort of similar to if, if you were hanging out and someone was like, you need to go move to San Francisco. Okay? That's about the same distance. And moreover, it's about the same kind of excitement. So say you lived in a really terrible part of California, like Temecula, or uh, really anywhere in the Inland Empire, something that really sucks. Okay, if you lived there, all right, and someone said to you, someone said, hey, great news, you get to move to San Francisco. You at the very beginning, you'd be like, oh boy, man, the, the Golden State Bridge, and then the, uh, the Haight-Ashbury, and the, the Pier 70-something, like, man, San Francisco's rad. So you start looking online, you go to, to, to Zillow. Yeah, and you're getting ready to move there. And you find out, I got, I, I got some, uh, some cool information here. You can't see it, probably. But that top line is the median housing price in uh, San Francisco. The next line below it is the, the median condo pricing in San Francisco. The line much lower than that is median in California as a state. And the one below that is median uh, housing price of, uh, of the United States as a whole. And just to give you, these, median, of course, means middle, right? So the uh, this 2018, uh, we have data for, in 2018, the median home price in San Francisco was a paltry $1.6 million. But that's okay, no big deal, because if you can't afford a home, you just get a condo, $1.2 million. 
So it's a lot, much more reasonable. You'll notice that, um, that the median, meaning that half of the homes sold in, in San Francisco were more than 1.6 million, and half of the condos that sold were more than 1.2 million. Uh, here in the state of California as a whole, $565,000 is the median condo price. $260,000 is the median U.S. condo price, indicating that moving to San Francisco is the worst. In fact, I mean, Kira and Mindy, wave your hands. They escaped. They ran away. They were living in San Francisco like, we got to get out of this, this hellhole. You know, like, we got to run. So you're sitting there, and, you know, and this is very similar to what Joseph would have been uh, confirmed with. Moving to Egypt probably means moving to Alexandria. Alexandria was the, uh, probably the largest Jewish settlement uh, in Egypt at the time. Alexandria is a port city, and it's, like I said, it's about uh, the distance from Escondido to San Francisco. So it's a fairly decent trip, especially in the ancient world. And, and, but also, Alexandria was like San Francisco in that it was very, very expensive. It was uh, a cosmopolitan center. Um, really, anywhere in Egypt, Cairo, Giza at the time, would have been fabulously expensive compared to Bethlehem or Nazareth. This would have been like just this horrible, horribly difficult move. And yet, the angel says, Joseph, you've got to go or Jesus is going to die. So you're getting ready to plunk down 1.6 mil for your uh, 1,700 square foot row house. And then you hear the news. Poop. Use needles. All across the land of San Francisco. And what originally started to sound like this amazing, awesome move, suddenly you're like, whoa. Going to San Francisco might be really terrible. In fact, it seems like they're having, you know, health and safety crises every day. My safety, my security, first my finances are shot because I can't afford to live there. Now my, my health and, 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 and my safety are, are in, in danger because I'm surrounded by a situation that is really unhealthy and really kind of kind of scary. Similarly, because of uh, their finances, the Joseph and Mary, when they moved to Alexandria or Cairo, Giza, wherever they ended up, they would have been uh, moving into a Jewish ghetto. Uh, Jewish ghettos are, um, were, were rife in the ancient world because Jewish people had to live by different rules than their pagan counterparts. So if you moved into Egypt, you moved into Alexandria, you would have to go in the Jewish quarter, is what they would call it. And it was a place that was actually economically suppressed and oppressed by the surrounding culture. Jews were not well-liked. Uh, for a variety of different reasons. And so as a result, uh, the, the people there, especially the poor, lived in some of the worst squalor of the ancient world. Because Joseph and Mary have no means, that's probably where they're going to end up. And so Joseph might be wondering, having Jesus in my life really seems like a bad deal. My reputation shot. And now what hopes I had for, for health and wealth and safety, those are shot too. To say nothing of having to leave his ancestral home and his family. And like I said at the beginning, you know, the holidays, Christmas time, 
when we're supposed to be preparing for the coming of God's salvation, we're supposed to be preparing to re-welcome Jesus into our life, tends to be the time when we are radically worried about our health and our wealth and our security. And I think part of the message here in the Christmas story is, yeah, if you want Jesus to be a part of your life, it might cost you. It might cost you some of your dreams of health and wealth and security. That's the next thing in your note sheets. Are you worried about health, wealth, and safety? Health and wealth and safety. And to be fair, if we're all honest, the answer is yes. So the way the way this uh, the way the story gets told, right? There, it's it's there's these two parts where you can see Joseph being like really put in a tough situation, right? At the beginning, he's put in a tough situation because he's going to lose his reputation as an honorable man. Um, and and at, the, at the end, he's put in a situation where he can't provide probably for his family. Uh, he's, he's worried now about health, wealth, and safety. What's interesting about the way that it's told is that right in the middle between these two, this, this opening and closing bracket is, is this marvelous, wonderful, magical story of something that happens in the interim. And, and this is called a chiastic structure. It's a, it's a Hebrew way of writing, and Matthew's doing this intentionally, because what's going to happen is you're going to be focused, and what happens in the middle is going to pop out. So we're, we, we, we are up at this point, we're like, oh, terrible, scary, awful, and then, oh, terrible, scary, awful, and then right in the middle, boom, something that is the opposite of that, something that's truly wonderful. Let's take a look. Let's take a look um, at the, the story of the, the wise men. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, that is wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod heard this and was disturbed because he doesn't want any new kings around. He's the king. And so he calls together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asks them where the Messiah is to be born. If you're wondering what wise men are, they probably come from Persia, modern-day Iran. Oh, they're not here. We have some Persian, Iranian friends, uh, Christian brothers and sisters that come. But anyway, uh, they, they were... Wise men or magi is kind of weird. They were actually just scientists in the ancient world. It would have been like uh, if the, the, the faculty of MIT came to you know, the, the president and said, we've done some astrophysics and we know that there's an you know, asteroid coming to hit us. Something like that. In the ancient world, there were various ways of divining how the world works. One of them was astrology. And so these... Um, these wise men were looking at the, at the sky. Some historians posit, depending on when you think Jesus was born, we do know that there was a supernova um, that took place in 5 BC. Uh, a lot of people think Jesus was born about 4 BC. Um, and then in, in 5 BC, or 4 to 5 BC, there was a supernova that, um, from the perspective, if you were in Persia and you were looking at the sky, it would have looked like it was over um, ancient Israel over approximately Jerusalem. It's possible that these astronomers in 4 to 5 BC saw this supernova, a brand new star, entering into the sky from their perspective. And it's possible that they uh, followed it and kind of wanted to see where it went. They had apparently interpreted this, this, this explosion, this blossom, as an announcement of a new king. A new star, a new king comes. And so they're wondering, where is this king? And so they go and they're, they're, they're trying to find. That, that was the science of the day. 
And isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that, that in the middle of all this fear and worry for Joseph, God in the background is doing some phenomenal things. You know, it's a supernova, it's something. We don't know exactly what, but possibly that. And, and, and there are people who have no idea who God is and, and who Jesus is and who have no idea of what the world is like. And yet, because they're paying really close attention to the natural world, the world that God has created, they see things and it reveals things to them that are truly wonderful, things that they could never have imagined. When we were on the men's retreat the first day, uh, Scott and Bill and Ryan and I, we were uh, sitting out, and where we were, there was like a whole bunch of campsites, but we got there on a Thursday night, and so none of the other campsites were in use. We were the only people there, just four of us. And so right around 9, 10 p.m., uh, we turned out all the lights, and we looked up, and we saw a true night sky. And it's almost overwhelming in its beauty. And in the midst of this, all this worry and this confusion about reputations and health and wealth and safety, in the middle of all of that, there are, there are people who are looking up at God's creation and they're seeing his majesty, seeing his beauty as it blossoms before them. And they're coming to conclusions about who God is and what God is like. If you're not into skies, as an example of God's glory and majesty... Perhaps the proboscis? It's the long-nosed monkey? Does it for you? I don't know. I look at that thing, and number one, I just want to honk that nose. And number two, I look at it, I'm like, man, God's awesome. We've been watching that Monsters University, like on instant replay, over and over, so I'm just like, oh. They, they came up with the craziest monsters in that show, and not one of them is as awesome as the long-nosed monkey. Let's go on here a little bit more about the wise men's story. Uh, so they, they go and they're like, hey, Herod, where's this, where's this uh, baby going to be born? Herod calls in his scientists. The Persian scientists look at the stars. Herod's scientists, uh, religious leaders, they look into the prophecies of the Old Testament. And they come up with a prophecy uh, that, that, that in Micah, which tells them something. It says, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the, the, the Jewish scientists, they study the text, and they're like, look, 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 it's, it's Bethlehem, six miles to the south, not that far away. And so Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. They do some math, right? If, they, if he knows when the star appeared, he knows when the baby was born. So he knows about how old the baby's going to be. And he sends them to Bethlehem and says, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. Herod has a different idea of worship than most of us. For Herod, that means murder. There's a, um, in 1950, the, uh, the Soviet Union released a, a propaganda film called Ruski Vaproska. Ruski Vaproska. I am really good at pronouncing Russian words. I have no idea if that's right or not, but Sounds cool. The, this was a big deal. They had hired this, uh, this propaganda film writer to come up with this amazing script, and it's about uh, Americans. And, and the, the main character of the, of the movie is this uh, American sympathizer with the communists. He's a, he's a compassionate man in, in a really uncompassionate 
you know, United States of America. And he bleed, his heart bleeds for the poor, for the working class. Uh, and as a result, he loses everything. His wife leaves him. You know, he loses his job. Like, his whole life falls apart. And the idea is, you watch this movie, and at the end, you're like, those Americans are the worst. Being a communist is awesome. It was a really big deal. They promoted it. Uh, at the time in Moscow, they, in one city, they, they opened it in 50 screens all at the same time, which was kind of unheard of for the Soviet Union. And the theater was packed, and people were watching the movie. And the interesting thing happened. The people were watching the movie, but they stopped paying attention to the plot. They stopped. This is actually a scene. Uh, this is a scene from the movie. In this scene, the, um, the, the young, compassionate man, is, is, his wife tosses him out. And it's supposed to be this gut-wrenching scene where, you know, the, the cold, heartless capitalist is doing away with the, the kind, warm, and compassionate socialist. Um, but, but the people weren't paying attention at all to the story because they kept, they were like, wait, 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 this is a poor family and they have a fridge? Whoa, 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 they have a, a stove? That place is huge! There's another scene uh, where he's walking, the, the, the young man is a poor, poor American from New York and he's walking through like the Bronx or something and, and there's these line, clothes lines and all the people, the children are living in poverty or whatever but the, the Russians were looking at like, look at all the clothes they have. They have, they have more than, than one set per day. These Americans are living in opulence. Within two weeks, the, uh, the, the, the movie had been removed from theaters and was never seen again. Because word was getting around that, contra the propaganda, America sounded like a really cool place. Don't you love that? When, like, the evil plotting of the bad guy just, like, just backfires spectacularly. I mean, Herod the Great was known as this cunning, vicious dude. And he's got this great setup. He's been given a preview. These, these, these poor, innocent, naive, you know, scientists, academics walk in. They're like, where's the new king? And he's like, let's kill this guy. And he sets him up. He, 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 he's the one he actually gets, he tells them where to go. It's like his, his plotting leads them right to Jesus. So he's the one who sets them on the way to Jesus. And then, and he's like, oh, but don't forget, I want to worship him too. And then God is working in the, behind the scenes and making sure that none of it happens. And so this, this, this moment of, of greatness, of victory for the bad guys turns into like totally flipped upside down because God's behind the scenes and orchestrating things and, and putting things in the right spot. And as a result, Jesus is, is, is vindicated and freed. These super powerful people with their powerful plots and their, their, their it's all just wiped away. Joseph is worried about his reputation. His health, his wealth, his safety, and, and the kings, the great powers of the world are being, being thrown out and, and set down and, and, and brought down by God. And so then, the key part, the part we all remember, the reason we think that there's three wise men is because of the three treasures, right? But who knows? Also notice that this is taking place long after the shepherds, probably, so you might want to just get like two different nativity sets. One where, like, see at this point, they've probably moved out of the hotel and they're like renting a, an apartment or something. So you could have like the apartment with uh, the three, magi- no, just 
do what she wants. It's fine. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of people spend a lot of time trying to figure out the significance of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I think it's interesting. Matthew doesn't tell us. And usually when there's some special significance in Matthew, he like goes out of his way to be like, oh, and this fulfills a prophecy, or this meant this. And the fact that he doesn't means, I think, that we should just take this kind of at, at face value, that Jesus got some gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I have a picture of those. I mean, it's fake, but this is what it might look like. Now, wait, where's Jen? We can get some frankincense oil and myrrh oil, probably. So if you guys want some of that stuff, you know, there, we, we have essential oil salespeople. So we take care of you. Uh, so I, I, I don't know that, because there are people who are like, well, the myrrh is for burial, and so it foreshadows Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe, maybe. I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just saying that you don't have to read that. I think probably a better way to read it would to be like, wow, gold and frankincense and myrrh, these are really rare, really valuable things. In fact, uh, if you, depending on what you think, I mean, the, the fact that Matthew uses the word treasure indicates treasure boxes. Those would have been, in the ancient world, small boxes, similar to what you see up on the, on the screen here, but, but maybe a little bit bigger, and then each one would have been kind of filled with gold and frankincense and myrrh. And if that's the case, then the, the estimates for contemporary, like how much it would cost, what, what they were giving, would be anywhere between um, half a million dollars and four million dollars worth of, of valuable stuff. So, if the median home price is $1.6 million, and you just got somewhere between half a million and four million in cash, non-taxable, by the way, that trip to Egypt isn't looking so bad anymore. In fact, it might be that the family is going to be able to go to Egypt and Joseph can maybe take a couple years off, sort of think about, you know, his future, maybe make some plans to go to grad school, you know, go back to school. He's, he's always wanted to, and now he has the opportunity. Maybe, maybe there's like a... You see, the way that, the, if we told it in, in, in order, when you hear this, when you hear that they got gold, frankincense, and you're like, wow, windfall, they won the lottery, what are they going to do with it? And then the angel shows up and goes, you got to go to Alexandria, Egypt, you have to move to San Francisco. And, and, and reading it, you're like, oh, well, that's not going to be so bad. Awesome. Get one of those cool row houses from Full House. I don't know about that Fuller House on Netflix. Uh, I saw a clip of it, and I didn't like it. I think I'm going to keep Alice from watching it ever again. So, Joseph, oh no, my reputation, I might lose it because I'm with Jesus. Joseph, oh no, my health, self, uh, health wealth, and safety, I might lose it because I'm with Jesus. Yeah, you might. But if you're so focused on all of that, then you're missing this incredible movement of wonder of these little and huge miracles that are taking place that are just paving the way for, yeah, Joseph, it's going to be challenging and scary, but 
Clearly God is real. Clearly God is big. Clearly God is good. And he's working things out behind the scenes in every aspect of the universe, whether it's the natural, whether it's nature and science, whether it's working behind the scenes to upend the the rulers, whether it's finding miraculous ways to provide for you and make sure you're going to be okay. God's behind it all. And if you're so stuck in this worry, 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 you're going to miss the opportunity for wonder. That's the next thing in your note sheets. God's gifts, science, sovereignty, supplies. That's cute, I know. It's alliteration. It's whatever. You get the point. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And anxiety and worry steal that sense of wonder. And I'm speaking from personal experience. And if we're really going to not worry this Christmas, then I think we need to, to do a worry check. And we need to kind of address some of the, the issues that, that surround worry. So uh, this is the first thing, uh, first question. Is our anxiety normal or deeply disordered? I ask this because um, personally having, well, gosh, three years ago, I spent New Year's Eve in the hospital with a panic attack, thought I was dying, well, thought I was having my first heart attack. No, I just, my brain's broken. Um, I do think that the holidays probably intensified uh, what was going on internally, but it, you know, it, you may be experiencing worry and anxiety may not just be like the normal stuff for you. It may not just be it may not just be like oh you know I'm worried about finances. It might be something that's deeply wrong, deeply disordered. If that's the case, then don't listen to anything that I've said, and instead come talk to me because you might need um, a, a more serious and deeper kind of help. Um, so that's just the first thing. The, the second thing, though, uh, what do we worry about over and over? What are the, the, the pitfalls? What are the, the, the gutters you get in? I mean, when Aaron and I were watching that Dave Ramsey thing, we looked back and realized for seven years our marriage had been the same thing. As soon as we start thinking about Christmas, we freak out. As soon as January comes, we look at the credit card and like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? That was like, it was this, this cycle that we had to get out of. And for, for us, I mean, this Christmas season, like, what is it? Is it the, the social anxiety of the parties? Is it the, you know, the, the stress over making sure that everyone thinks that your, your family is perfect and awesome um, and that you look great? Uh, is, it, is it the different things for different people? Everyone's motivated by different stuff. And, and that's where the worry comes from. So, so take a, a moment to, to take some inventory there. Number three. Are we willing to trade safety, security, or reputation for wonder at God's power and provision? You know, the Joseph story, the story of the coming of the Lord for Joseph is a story where he's asked to have open hands. He's asked to say, Joseph, I don't want you to hold on to your reputation. I don't want you to hold on to your health, your wealth, your safety. I want you to have those things available, open. Be willing to let those go because, because being with Jesus is so wonderful and experiencing what Jesus does when he comes and he saves, having him as part of your life is worth it. It's better than all of the, the reputation and the safety and the health and the wealth. And we typically don't buy that. Last, 
Are we missing some of the wonder of the season and why? Last week we talked about rest. Setting, being intentional about stepping back and playing and, and enjoying and appreciating. If you're practicing that rest with me, well, I recommend to you one thing that we're doing when we're resting. One of the things that we're doing is we're reflecting on the wonder of the season, the coming of God, the salvation of the world, that, that, that Jesus is with us, that because he's with us, we cannot be defeated. Because he's with us, the victory is ours in this life and the next, that there, nothing can come against us because the Son of God who came into the world is our light, is our hope. If he is for us, who can be against us? If he's there, then who cares about your reputation and your health and your wealth and your safety because it's all been secured ultimately. And so while you're playing, while you're stopping, while you're resting, look and remember that Emmanuel, God, is with us. And in that, I think we can move from worry back to wonder. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess the coming of your Son, your generous gift to us to come and be with us. That through the Holy Spirit, you brought Jesus into the world that we might have light and life, never be alone again. We might have redemption, freedom from sin and death. And that over and over, as the Spirit moves in this place and in this community, we, re, we re-receive him into our midst. God, I pray for those here who are battling in worry, are battling anxiety at this season and, and throughout the year, God, lost, unable to recapture the glory of the coming of your son because of, you know, finances and status and all the things that the world says matter. God, I ask that we would just reject those things, that your spirit would stir up a sense of wonder and joy, that you are bigger, you are mightier, you are better. Your perfection and goodness and grace overflow and they free us to be bowled over again and again by who you are and what you do. In this Advent season, God, make us a people of wonder. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.